Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. For once, the pound is not doing anything. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, Vince Signorella, Bloomberg macro strategist, joining me here. Uh, Paul Sweeney out on a much-deserved vacation. Uh, it has been an incredibly volatile period for the pound, for sterling. Uh, today, people are not sure what to make. The European Union leaders are planning to offer the UK conditional Brexit extension at this week's summit in Brussels, uh, widely expected in markets. The question is, though, going forward, uh, what this means for what kind of Brexit we're going to get. And to answer that question and tell us exactly what we can expect and uh, look into the crystal ball is John Authors, who joins us here in our interactive broker studios. Uh, So John is the senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. What do you think? What's going on here? How much credence do we put into a delay getting a better Brexit deal? Uh, a delay? Well, we there's no deal that's possible uh, other than the one that Theresa May has already negotiated without a delay. So uh, if you have more of a po- you know a positive uh, Pollyanna-ish attitude towards this, then plainly a delay should be able to improve the ultimate outcome. Um so there is that element of positivity. That said, the government's strategy throughout has been to uh, work on the assumption that any delay is going to be seen as a betrayal. Uh, that is a big part of why it doesn't want to delay, if at all possible. Uh, and adds to that that uh, uh, the uh, the uh, clear uh, deadline has been used as a negotiating tactic. Now, what's interesting in the last uh, few days is that that deadline did appear at last to be working. We heard quite a number of very aggressively hard-line pro-Brexit MPs beginning to suggest that they would vote for this rather than take the risk of leaving without a no-deal, or perhaps more importantly for them, taking the risk that they would end up without a Brexit at all. Um so that then leads to the, the very intriguing uh, uh, parliamentary drama we had yesterday when the Speaker decided that uh, we wouldn't be able to have another vote on this unless Theresa May can get another deal. I think, having you wanted me to answer the question, and obviously I can't because nobody can, Come I on, think what's most. Make it up. <laughs> I think what's most likely, I think what's most likely at this point uh, is in the next week that. Europe comes up with something that is enough of an excuse for Theresa May to ask for another vote that we get one more vote probably next week. I think the odds are still narrowly on that vote failing, i.e. the the Brexit deal that we've got ahead of us, which from the markets is a point of view is a very good one because it leaves Britain basically uh, in economic terms in Europe. And from the point that's Brexiteers' terms, it's a very bad deal, but from market terms, it's a very good deal. The most likely scenario is that that still narrowly gets down, and at that point, we have to have a long delay. So with the delay and uh, the the potential vote next week, Mm. there's some talk that what the EU will propose is uh, making some consolation to the delay, adding that to May's deal and would that be enough to get past Burkow to give her the opportunity for a vote next week or do you think they need to come up with something substantially different? 
they can't come up with something substantially different in the time available. And you won't, you won't allow it anyway. Uh, really. I, 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 this is we're we're in the realm of politics. We're in we're in a country that doesn't have a constitution. Um, this is a precedent. It's an extremely strong precedent that dates back to the very early years of James the First, who came after. Elizabeth I in 1604. I love talking about British politics. It dates back <laughs> yes, to it's... the dark ages. Yeah, it's fun. Um, <laughs> the, the, but but the constitu- our constitution is a fluid document, which is to say it doesn't exist. So you can, you can alter it if you absolutely have to. Burko at this point is in a political situation. If it is obvious um, that there is will to have a vote, he probably will take an excuse to bend and vote. The other important point to note is that there are ways around it. If you really want a glorious British possibility, Theresa May could always call an end to this parliamentary session and start a new one. The only problem there being that she has to get the Queen to agree to come and give a new speech because... This is like Alice in Wonderland. This is like literally the tea party at Alice in Wonderland. If she shakes her hand like this and says abracadabra, they can restart it and John Burko doesn't have a leg to stand on. This mm. is crazy, no? Why doesn't she just do that then? It's, it is crazy. Well, she's the, the, the queen is a nice old lady in her 90s. We don't really want to <laughs> drag her around the streets of London and stick her in the throne. She's got to wear quite a heavy crown while she gives that speech. So, so we've got to be polite to uh, polite to her while we're at it. Uh, that, that's that's one point. I mean, the other point is you're joking, right? It's I, not I am. being polite to the night. It's not queen. being polite to the queen. Thank you. Uh, I'm the just other point, that for anybody yes, yes, out there. Yes. Thank you. The <laughs> other point, the other point, which is more serious, is that you can get Parliament to vote to override the normal rule as. Uh, If a majority of Parliament can vote to override the Speaker, however, they have to be sure that that, that somebody has to organise them to do that. And in principle, you, you can only get that if you have already assured yourself that a majority of people will actually use that vote to change their mind. I mean, you're speaking about the politics. This is a, a rule that really hasn't been used since 1922, I understand. Um, I think that's well, yes, but that's partly because, generally speaking, if you've lost once, you don't, try you don't go again. back. Go, uh, no going back to the well. I, I mean, I mean, giving, giving, you know, moving on from Lewis Carroll, I've, I've drawn the analogy, and others have to, to, to Theresa May of Theresa May to Monty Python's Black Knight, who has both his arms and both his legs cut off, and still doesn't know he's beaten, and you know, says, "Come back here, and I'll bite your legs." Just a flesh wound. Now, now, basic, just a flesh wound. Tis but a scratch. Um, most most British prime ministers are not gluttons for punishments and don't actually keep putting exactly the same vote to the MPs when they've lost already. So yes, it hasn't been invoked since then, but it, generally speaking, people you don't. It's not something you need to invoke. People don't like losing more than once on the same issue. John Authors, our uh, Monty Python correspondent uh, here at Bloomberg LP, joining us here in our 1130 studios. John Authors is senior editor of Bloomberg Markets. And uh, Brexit does draw natural comparisons to uh, Lewis Carroll and Monty Python at this point. I, I was actually just trying to picture the Queen with her staff whacking Burkow over the head for dragging That's her out into amazing. the amazing. That's procedure. absolutely amazing with her heavy crown. I, I actually think uh, she would just give him the look of death. Absolutely, would. it would. It, it would, would be, be worth it. It, it would be. It would be <laughs> worth it. 
I am Lisa Abramois, Paul Sweeney on vacation. Vince Signorella, I am so glad to say, Bloomberg uh, macro strategist joining me here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. You know, it's really interesting when you talk about recycling. Do you ever wonder where does it go? Who I, takes I, it? I think this is a fascinating story. It's fascinating, right? And, and, and for years, it was China. Yes. And they have stopped taking our trash. And there is a question, is it even worth recycling anymore? And are people recycling or are frankly waste management companies just throwing this stuff away? Joining us now to discuss Brent Bell, Vice President of Recycling at Waste Management based in Houston. Uh, joining us by phone. Brent, what's the answer to this? As China refuses to take our trash, are we just throwing stuff away rather than recycling it ourselves? No, you know, we, we're still recycling a waste management. We had to, had to find alternative markets, though, because China was accepting 30% of the material we shipped over there in uh, historical high years. Now they're down to about 3%. So we really had to look worldwide to find other markets for the mixed paper, the cardboard, and the fiber that China was consuming for so many years. And w what are those markets? I mean, you're saying we're still exporting globally, just not to China, to other countries? That's that's right. So India, some other parts of Southeast Asia have really stepped up. Uh, we developed those markets years ago, knowing that the dependence on China was was somewhat, uh, you know, something that we we knew at some point would end. You know, they've talked about it for years from environmental concerns uh, due to high contamination levels on uh, reducing the amount of imports that they would take. And it's it's a global issue. So it's not just U.S. to China. It's other countries going into China. Uh, we've all had to shift and find alternative markets, and then even domestic. Domestically, you're seeing a lot of new expansions domestically in paper mills, which we haven't seen in decades. Are other markets more expensive than China? So I would I would say they, they, they right now the prices are a lot lower than other than China was. China was always a premium buyer for these type of materials, and other markets, whether it's India, Southeast Asia, even here domestically, uh, because of the recent oversupply situation caused by China, uh, we have seen a lot lower prices on the commodity side. So that creates a definite price imbalance, right? If people are paying less for it, but the cost of recycling goes up, that's the conundrum you have as to what do you do with the stuff if it just costs more to recycle than effectively throwing it away. Exactly. Today, our processing costs at our facilities, you know, exceed the value of those commodities by uh, by you know ten to twenty dollars per ton, which means that the ultimately the, the customer that generates those materials has to pay that difference. Where historically, their business models, whether that's a municipality or a commercial customer, relied on these commodity prices that somewhat you know subsidized some of their budgets, and actually it was money coming into them for so many years. Now it's money going out to pay for the processing costs. So, Brent. Uh, there was an article in the Atlantic magazine in the past uh, week or so. Is this the end of recycling? That was the title of the article. And it was talking about how Americans are throwing more and more stuff away. And there are fewer countries that actually want to take this stuff. You are saying you sound constructive that you're still recycling. But is there a, sort of a, a diminishing effect? Uh, are people recycling less than they did, say, a year ago or two? So I think the, the big part now is people are recycling as much or more, but some of the materials they're putting in the stream is contaminated. So what we're trying to do now is go through an education program to make sure that they understand what the right materials are to put in those materials to begin with and they're in the recycling bins to begin with. But I, I do think that whether you're selling material or paper mills or here in the U.S. or India, they all expect a much higher quality material than ever before. 
So it almost seems like this should be part of the conversation of, that everyone's speaking about, about green deals and, and green products. It does, if we're polluting, if you will, with plastics and recyclables, certainly doing uh, other things to the environment, is, it's, it's not a trade-off. It seems like we should be getting to start where the problem first started, right? That's right. And I think you hit the nail on the head a few minutes ago when you mentioned the supply imbalance. Is so many, For so many years, we've had um, our customers want to have higher diversion rates and produce more recycling. What we haven't focused heavily on that we need to is on the brands and the manufacturers to use more recycled content. We need to create that demand situation, which has really dropped off today, and that's what's caused lower prices. But if we can encourage our customers to use more recycled content, to support brands that have recycled content in their, in their products and packaging, that will help create this demand that's so needed right now. Brent Bell, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, this is a really important issue, and uh, hopefully we will hear from you again. Brent Bell is Vice President of Recycling at Waste Management uh, based in Houston. Vince, I find it fascinating because this is such a consumption-based society, and you have to wonder uh, when you do spend that time sorting things into the different bins, do they just end up throwing it away? Yeah, and, and you know, you do that pollution issue is really important because people don't really look at all the times at what they're recycling. And they say, well, if it's plastic or if it's metal, then it certainly must go in the bin, but not necessarily. And there also is an education issue with respect to cleaning some of these uh, plastics or other containers, right? Really you have difficult to actually, to do, yes. it can be really difficult, really right? Especially that the grease just sort of like stays in tough, the cracks. Tough. And then if you spend a lot of time using the water, are you wasting the water and the heat? And the, I mean, I give this way too much Scrubbing thought. Scrubbing those aluminum pants. Yeah, you can tell how neurotic I am. Vince Signorella alongside me today, Bloomberg Macro Strategist Paul Sweeney on vacation. Uh, I am so happy you're here. My pleasure. Uh, we were talking about Bitcoin a lot over the past 18 months or maybe 18 months ago when the price of Bitcoin uh, was more than four times as much as it is currently, currently trading uh, less than $4,000 each. Uh, but there is a question what is the future of cryptocurrencies as enthusiasm wanes? Joining us now to weigh in is Eric Larchevec. He is chief executive of Ledger based in Paris, but he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Uh, tell us a little bit about what Ledger is and how it fits into this cryptocurrency world at a time of transition, I would argue. Yeah, Ledger is a security company, a technology company providing uh, with hardware wallets and all technologies to secure Bitcoin and crypto assets because it's a complex asset. You need to secure it. And so we are a global leader providing solutions for individuals and enterprises. So what has it done uh, for your business? The, the fact that uh, there has been this sort of uh, drop in enthusiasm, SIBO just saying that they are not going to trade futures contracts tied to Bitcoin anymore uh, just in the past few days. Well, we have a lot of uh, enterprises and financial institutions working with us. And we have, despite the, the, the collapse of the price in the recent months, the strategies are still very strong. So uh, if uh, CBO is, is, is uh, stopping their futures, maybe first it can 
push up the price because you cannot short it anymore. Uh, but also, most of the financial institutions have a very strong strategy for the future of crypto because it's not only decentralized cryptocurrencies, it's also tokenization. And basically, they really want to, to build a, a new back office based on this technology. Yeah, and I think we were just talking about that off the air, that the fact that SIBO uh, stepped out is actually potentially a good opportunity for Bitcoin to rise again, because as soon as they came in with that future, it gave traders an opportunity to short the, the physical, uh, if you will, the technology physical. And, and that is almost immediately after the price came down, is now that they've stepped out, there is an opportunity for traders to get back in and play Bitcoin the way they did before SIBO. Maybe SIBO stepping out, but you have firms like JP Morgan Chase stepping in and saying they want to develop their own digital currency. So this is definitely a positive for you and, and for the future of the company, no? Yeah, clearly, uh, we have seen a lot of ups and downs. Uh, when the, the price shoot to the moon, uh, the sales of our hardware wallets went through the roof as well. Uh, we were planning to sell 30,000 units. We ended selling 1 million. So with the price going down, it's the opposite. But we see a lot of opportunities, as I was saying, on the enterprises, because uh, the future is really aligned with uh, cryptocurrencies, tokenization, uh, and uh, they don't want to miss the next wave. There's an irony here that uh, crypto assets are not physical, they are digital, and yet there is a need for a physical uh, accessibility or, or storage of a Bitcoin in a way uh, that can create security. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's sort of, uh, it's, it's challenging for people to get the same kind of security it is cyber setting without the physical. Yeah, contrary to what we think when we say virtual currencies or used to say virtual currencies before crypto assets, it's in fact very physical. When you own Bitcoins or any crypto assets, what you really own is a private key. It's a piece of information. It's something that you can write on a piece of paper, something that can, you can even engrave in a plate of steel and put in a safe. So it's like cash or it's like physical, it's like beer bonds. And so you need to protect them. You cannot have them on your PC or your smartphone because then you can get hacked. That's why you need a secure device which is built uh, on smart cards, which is going to allow security. It's like a fortress for your Bitcoins. So like, on that subject, because I just find the whole thing fascinating. There have been so many stories of people embezzling and, and the, I, I think something, what is it, still $850 million goes missing every year from Bitcoin wallets here, there and everywhere. If it's in your wallet, if it's in your company's wallet and somebody then does hack your phone or your computer, explain to me how that remains protected if they've, they've got access to it, but they don't have access to it. Well, if you are an enterprise, you need to have governance to manage your funds. So usually when we deploy our solutions, you will have multi-signature, time locks, you will have a lot of features that will prevent a single point of failure. Uh, because when you want to manage these assets as an enterprise, you need to have rules. And this is the technology that we are providing. Because if you imagine that you will have only a safe with one key, then the problem is not really IT, the problem is the process, because to whom do you give access to the fund, I mean to the safe, what happens if there is a hostage situation, if the, the, the CFO runs with the, the safe itself, that's why you need, com you need this, uh, these layers of, of governance. And when you have multi-signature, then you can have like protections thanks to all the process you can put in place. 
And uh, just real quickly, 30 seconds here. This uh, product, the Ledger Nano X, which is a Bluetooth-enabled uh, hardware wallet, you just introduced it at CES. Yeah. Just real quick, uh, was there a lot of enthusiasm? Was there more than you expected, or, or was it waiting because of what's going on in cryptocurrencies? No, yeah, it was a lot of enthusiasm, which was very good because despite the, the, the drop in price, uh, people are still using our products. And the Nano X with Bluetooth allows management on the go. You can have your mobile phone, your smartphone, your Apple, your Android. And so people are enthusiastic because they will be able to use it much easier than before. Cryptocurrencies aren't dead yet, and uh, people are definitely looking for ways to make sure that their uh, assets are not stolen. Eric uh, Lechevec, thank you so much for being with us, Chief Executive Officer of Ledger, normally based in Paris, but joining us here in New York. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. Vince Signorella joining me today. This is Bloomberg. Paul Sweeney off today on a much-deserved vacation. Joining me, I'm very pleased to say, Ben Signorella, Bloomberg macro strategist. Really interesting story. Instagram uh, is getting into e-commerce. If you like it, click it and buy it directly on the site. Uh, this is new. They are unveiling this. It's already moving markets with Shopify falling the most in two weeks, uh, say, after RBC said the e-retailer could be hurt by the launch of this program, which is called Checkout on Instagram. Instagram. Sarah Fryer joining us now, who covers all things tech for Bloomberg. Uh, Sarah, what exactly is Instagram Checkout? Instagram Checkout allows people to actually purchase products from their Instagram app and do it all there. In the past, they had a way for you to see a product, identify it, and then go to the retailer's website. Uh, really, what Checkout does is give Instagram a new line of revenue, a new line of business, which is going to be incredibly important to the future of the company. So, Sarah, I'm getting the feeling there's going to be a lot of butt buying on this app. Um, <laughs> yeah, is there is there any sort of interface that... Uh, would... Sorry, mom, I butt bought that right. <laughs> um, look, I had a mechanic buy a car in an auction by accident. He was looking at it, put it in his pocket, right, and then he was stuck with $27,000. Um, well, first you have to give Facebook your credit card number. Well, there you go. I wonder how many people People will want to do that. Good point. Really good point. So, I mean, is that one of the is that one of the issues? Is that like the first thing you have to do is is turn over uh, your your well? I mean, you're, you have to purchase something on the app. I, you know, here here's the thing. This is the most promising business besides advertising for Facebook. And advertising is what's gotten Facebook into so much trouble. And of course, I should note, Instagram is owned by Facebook. Um, and and this is this is something they can do without having to collect data or um, get built up into that system that's getting so much criticism right now. Well, but so it's good for them to try something new. It's also the the newsfeed, the Facebook newsfeed, is losing traction with people. Well, but the, see, it does raise a question though on a broader level because Facebook, the parent company of Instagram, getting your uh, credit card information at a time when they're under increasing scrutiny uh, for uh, failing on privacy concerns, uh, really? Yeah, I mean, it, it, 
the thing the thing you have to remember though is consumers think of Instagram as a separate entity in their minds. They think of it as a separate brand. So while people might not trust Facebook, they certainly trust and love Instagram. So it creates this weird dichotomy where Instagram is able to launch and succeed with products that Facebook maybe couldn't. So we um we getting in Jeff Bezos' face here with uh, Amazon and, and Amazon Prime with a product like this. It's very different because what Instagram's checkout product is going to be about is you're scrolling through your feed, you see something that inspires you, and then you save it, maybe you you share it. One of the actions you can take is to buy it. That's very different than Amazon where you know exactly what you want. Like, I want more black t-shirts and you go on Amazon, you search for it and you find the best one. This is going to be about seeing things in a lifestyle setting that inspires you to look like that person. Honestly, I think it's going to be so tied to the influencer market, uh, people able to sell their own goods after they've become famous. So more of an impulse purchase. I, I think more of an impulse purchase, more like I want to be like that person who's wearing this dress. What does this say about Facebook's strategy more broadly to increase revenues and sort of uh, claw its way back into a better, uh, better, better opinion in the public eye? Well, Facebook is in trouble because, I mean, not if you look at their numbers, but if you think about the future of their numbers, they're in trouble because newsfeed and Facebook itself is not going to grow at the rate it used to uh, because it's already reached so much saturation around the world. So they have to come up with more and different business models in order to deliver to Wall Street the growth they're used to seeing. And e-commerce is something that they've talked about as, as something that could work. They're also trying things within messaging products. They're also trying, maybe they'll do some, some money exchange on WhatsApp. But e-commerce is the one on Instagram that's most likely to actually work beyond advertising. Sarah, what are the additional regulatory hurdles that Facebook faces uh, when you start talking about financial products, when you start talking about giving over your credit card to Facebook? Well, they've done it sort of sneakily, right? I I, I don't know if you've ever been asked to, to donate to a friend's cause for their birthday on Facebook. That's a way for Facebook to get your credit card number. I mean, there there's some ways that that they've tied it into their product that seem very unscary. But then when you step back and think about it, you realize what you're giving away. Um, and so, you know, I think that that is it's not going to become totally clear to people exactly what the consequences are for these kinds of products until a couple years later, which is what we saw happen with Facebook using developers making games on their platforms when that didn't become a problem until years after it was over so what um, i guess the target market for this is like the 25 to 40 year olds yeah it's everyone who tries to be inspired by products on instagram and i think it's the most natural place for people to be uh thinking about what they want to buy already people follow influencers so often for for recommendations on what to wear, what to buy, what to eat, what to put on their faces. You know, there's so many makeup influencers out there and so many of those high profile people now have their own product lines. If you have a famous dog that you follow on Instagram, you probably see that they have merchandise you can buy that uh, you know, it, you can buy their dog face on a mug. I mean, all these things will be so much easier to do 
now that that Instagram has integrated shopping into it and is taking a cut. Well, uh, in other tech news, Sarah, and I'm going to throw you a curveball, but uh, I'm wondering if you have any opinion on this news coming out that Republican Representative Devin Nunez of California is suing Twitter and several of its users for more than $250 million uh, for parody accounts of his mom. Devin Nunez' mom, Devin Nunez' cow. It's just sort of interesting. It shows, uh, it, I mean, look. It shows how personal this is. Listen, yes. I, I, I sat in one of these hearings, or I listened to uh, so many of these congressional hearings on Facebook. You know, people who are members of our government who say they're trying to hold Facebook accountable. And so often the question that gets asked is, why don't I get as much reach as I used to? Why are these bad things happening to me on my account? It's basically... You know, complaints and tech support and and people <laughs> tech support do, congressional it, hearings know, on tech support. Love it. It, it is. It is. I mean, it's service. it's like it's like why why don't I get as many likes as I used to? <laughs> and and it is really just like people don't understand how these algorithms work. They don't understand how these products are are built in this way that is yeah. so not not human. Yeah. Uh, they're frustrated. Sarah Fryer, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah Fryer, technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.